Hello and a very warm welcome to Changing World New Opportunities. I'm Louise Farrand. And I'm Lorna Kennedy. In our second season of the podcast, we're interviewing senior investment figures from Master Trust Pension Schemes. We're asking them to reflect on the investment challenges facing them as DC leaders. What are they excited about and what's keeping them awake at night? If you'd like to find out as soon as a new episode comes out, you could subscribe to our email alert at www.dcin.co.uk and click hear more. Or you could follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at DCIF underscore UK. On with the show. Hi, everyone. This week, we spoke to James Lawrence, Head of Investment Proposition at Smart Pension, didn't we, Lorna? Yeah, we did. Well, once we eventually spoke to him, Louise, because we had quite a few techie issues, James was extremely patient and then very, very interesting when when we managed to get the tech to work. He was. He was lovely. He just sat there nursing his herbal tea because he stopped drinking coffee, which I'm a little bit envious of his uh, self-control there because I'm definitely that person who drinks more coffee than I should. So well done, James. But yeah, he said lots of interesting stuff about communication and engagement, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And it was was almost uh, be careful what you wish for. Of course, he would love people to be more engaged, but it's very hard to be engaged when you're thinking about something that might be 30 years away and seems quite intangible. And then the things he really wants people to engage about is when they're going to retire. And often people change their minds. So yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, he definitely teased the fact though that Smart Pension made quite a few communication changes after what happened in 2022 and also that they're looking at that asset allocation retirement at the moment. So it'll be really interesting to see how those things develop. I suppose we all evolve and get slightly closer to members and what they really want to achieve. So yeah, it was a really good conversation. And thanks so much, James, for bearing with me as I struggle to connect one end of a microphone to another. Over to James. Well, hi, James. A very warm welcome to the podcast. We've had a slightly interesting start to the day, haven't we? It's been testing, I think we would say, but we've got there. I don't think any of us would pretend to be technical experts, and we've just proved it in the last 20 minutes. (laughs) I mean, I'm the blind leading the blind here. It's been an interesting 20 minutes, and I'm rather warm, having attached a lot of incorrect wires to other incorrect wires, but hopefully this will all work and you will hear us. So anyway, James, welcome. Tell us a little bit about you. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Great to be here. Yeah, so I've been in, in the pensions industry for 11, 10, 11 years now which feels like a long time, actually, once you've been in it. I started at Mercer as a grad 11 years ago, was in consulting for a few years, investment consulting. Then I went to the dark side within consulting, which is the fiduciary side of the business. So I was kind of leading the investment strategy for Mercer's workplace savings team, about 10 or so billion at the time, and then made the jump to smart pension a couple of years ago. And it's, as you can imagine, a very different place to work, the fintech environment versus big, large, global Bayamoth consulting firm. But yeah, I'm leading the investment proposition there as well, trying to do some interesting stuff with our managers, net zero, private markets, all the good stuff that I'm sure we're going to talk about. So yeah, been a, it's been a fun career so far in pensions. I guess looking back to last year, 2022 was pretty volatile, particularly if you were a DB scheme, there was lots of excitement round about the mini budget. How did your scheme fare? I know it's different for DCs, it's a different pressures, but how did that impact you? And are there any lessons that you've learned? 
definitely some lessons. Yeah, there was, it was, I think, a tale of two, two sides for us really. So the our growth fund did pretty well. I mean, we were still negative, about minus seven ish percent. But if we try and compare ourselves to peers, which we don't try and do that often, but we they were some of them were down 10, 11, 12 plus percent. Some markets were down 15, 20 percent as well. So being around seven percent, we weren't too displeased with that. Obviously, we try and compare ourselves to inflation, and that was very tricky to do so we were well under target from that perspective but you know we're a long-term investor so it's the long term that we're looking at i think pre-retirement where it was a little bit trickier at times we had a fairly large allocation to government uk government bonds through our we've got an annuity matching fund and that was as i'm sure you're both aware took a very big hit i think that fund and other similar funds were down 30 percent over the year at that point so that was very tricky i mean we've designed that pre-retirement bit to be to line up nicely with our post-retirement four-pot model. We weren't investing in it because we think UK government bonds is the right place to be over the longer term or a great investment necessarily at all times, but it's there to do a job. But obviously that's not all members are going to be taking part of their pot as annuity. So that was, I guess, a little bit of a sharpen the mind for us at retirement around what members are actually doing um, and where we're investing. Have you made any changes on the on the back of that? We haven't yet. Well, we've made quite a lot of communication changes. Firstly, we've kind of toned down, I think, some of the wording around the safeness and haven like natures of government, UK government bonds in particular, which I'm sure many others are in the same boat as us. So we've definitely done that. We're trying to sharpen up the engagement piece at retirement as well. I'm sure we'll come on to this to and through retirement piece. But we, we invest in a quite specific way for how we think people should be taking their pots at retirement and how our four pot model actually works in retirement. Obviously not. There's a number of members that don't follow that path. So for us, it's a lot about engagement and we're definitely doing some kind of introspection as to that asset allocation at retirement as well. Yeah, you've hit on it really that there's so much uncertainty about when people will retire and will they change their mind and the difficulty that presents you with designing your investment strategy to try and deal with that. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and maybe a bit about your four pots as well? It's incredibly tricky working in DC and designing DC investment propositions. We've got a million plus members and DC is almost kind of quasi retail in some ways. And we are trying to be private wealth managers to a million plus people. And those million plus people don't engage and don't do what they say they're going to do. And we're kind of shooting in the dark a little bit when it comes to investments. So for us, well, for me in particular, I think there's two aspects to it. I think firstly, I think these issues are solved by investment solutions necessarily. We found that in kind of the US and Australia and others where they designed very complex investment solutions with longevity pooling and things that kick in at different ages. And it's just it's not understood by members or advisors or anyone really. So it's not going to solve the problem. So secondly, for us, a lot of it is about just doing the least worst thing for members at that point, because we don't want to invest in very specific ways. And then, you know, only 2% of members actually follow through on that path. So that engagement piece is, is obviously huge and a huge issue for the industry at the moment. There's lots of interesting things going on, lots of different providers. We think the four-pot model works fairly well for us at the moment because it's quite simple and intuitive and we've got quite a nice, as a tech company, we've got quite a nice journey that takes members into that at retirement and helps them put different pieces into the puzzle rather than just leaving them kind of high and dry at retirement and saying, here's your pot of a couple hundred thousand pounds. Work out how you're going to live off, off this for the rest of your life. We try and break it down a bit for them. But it's not perfect. We're probably going to refine it over time. We're looking at doing something a bit different. We quite like the flex and fix model that a few people are talking about and LCP have been pioneering. 
That's the route we're going down. So we might streamline our pot model a bit further as well for that sort of model. Yeah, I think you've really summed it up. We don't know when people are going to retire. They might change their mind. It's a bit of a nightmare for investment design, isn't it? Not engaged. They're not engaged. It's it's so tricky. And we, we talked a bit about this on the, the last podcast we did with Julius as well, didn't we? And I think he was saying investment um, engagement is is really important. Do you feel like you have any brilliant thoughts on investment, getting people, bringing investment to life, I suppose, for people and helping them to engage a bit more? Because I guess if they do engage with the investment side, maybe they're a bit more likely to engage with retirement planning, or is that just me kind of wishing on a cloud? I think when I talk about this, I sometimes come across as a bit negative. We've talked in the past about whether members should be engaged in the first place because sometimes they make bad decisions and we find that actually we find that when we do big engagement pieces sometimes members opt out of their pension scheme or they invest in kind of low risk investments because they think our oh, cash is the best place to be for 30 years and it's just not the place i mean it's probably a much more deep conversation around whether freedom and choice should have happened in the first place whether members should be their own wealth managers at retirement whether they've they will ever have that skill set to be able to do that my view is probably not for the vast majority of people even if we get things better in schools and education's better it's for myself working in industry that post-retirement conundrum is is really difficult i don't know what i'm going to do personally for example i've got some ideas but it's trying to work out how long i'm going to live when the best time to annuitize is is just a nightmare so i don't think there's a magic bullet i think keeping it simple is always the best way and that's what we're finding as well so got some anecdotal evidence of people coming up to retirement friends and family members and other people and they've got pots all over the place they don't know what to do with it the way they think about it's not the way that we think about it in the industry a lot of time actually they've got you know four pots from four different providers and they think i'll just take a little bit from here so that'll last me a couple of years and i'll take a little bit from there we assume everyone's very rational and they're going to consolidate it and they're going to they're going to maybe take some drawdown for a few years as a bridging piece and then they're going to take an annuity when annuity rates are right it's just not how individuals think about it so I think keeping it simple, they need a lot more support than we're giving. I kind of bang the drum a lot about robo-advice and that piece and moving into that world because advice, I think a lot of people need advisors, but they're too expensive for the vast majority of people for the pot sizes they have. So something in the middle that really solves it, I don't think we've done that as an industry yet. Um, I think I've not really answered your original question around investments and there being a really good way of engaging people. And I... There's definitely things that help. We found certain topics really engage people and they do start to make some good choices off the back of it once they know where their money's gone. So we've just launched three different growth funds with different shades of green and the top one's really quite punchy from that perspective and we're finding some individuals really like it. They're engaging on carbon neutrality. They're engaging on investing in renewable energies. They're investing in, engaging on investing in water management and biodiversity and things they can see around them a lot more. That's the main part of the battle is getting them to understand their money actually makes a difference to the world around us and it goes into companies and it's not just set in a bank account. As a traditional AE scheme, that was a big hurdle for us and we're starting to get there now. And I suppose that's more immediate as well, isn't it? So the difficulty is you're asking people to care about something that they're going to take in 20 years and who can think about that? But if you're thinking about things round about you, about clean water or carbon neutrality or whatever it is. I mean, that's nail on the head for me. I don't think anyone can think 30 years ahead and make good decisions for 30 years' time, really, as much as there's some great tools out there. And we, the Scottish Widows tool that came out, the Pensions Mirror, I think is really interesting and really engaging. And I'm sure it will definitely help move the dial a little bit, but I don't think anyone, no matter how rational and logical, can think that far ahead. So as you say, yeah, getting them engaged in, oh, I'm investing in something really interesting here. 
is just going to help that bit more. And I really come back to, and this is kind of wider than investments, but things like auto escalation and improving auto enrollment rates as well, I think is just going to be absolutely critical because we have to take advantage of people being quite apathetic towards this sometimes and that can work in our favour with pensions. So I think there's more to do. Can I leap on what you said about robo-advice? Because I'm really interested in robo-advice. I haven't seen anything that's been amazing. I mean, to be fair, I haven't looked particularly hard. In my head, robo-advice is a bit like, you know when you have to go on one of those chat functions on a customer service and then it can never answer your question. You go through like 10 steps with it. I think there's one customer service I've ever been on which has been robo that's actually helped me. Do you think robo-advice will ever get to the point where it is actually meaningful and helpful to people? Because I guess my kind of issue with robo-advice is people have different parts. Everything one's different. Everyone has different kind of situation with their mortgage or not having a mortgage. And yeah. Do you know what I mean? People come from such different places to retirement. How optimistic do you feel that robo-advice can help bridge the gap? I'm fairly optimistic on that. I think you're completely right. People want, there's so much complexity in retirement planning. And then when you throw in other pieces of their finances, there's just an unbelievable amount of complexity and that can't be solved by what a fairly generic kind of user experience is at the moment i think something like ai is going to be helpful in that and i don't know how long you expect in before someone mentioned (laughs) ai on a podcast but (laughs) 10 minutes or so is probably yeah yeah about right that's really going to help as well there's much more power that different trees that are trying to say kind of you know different dependencies and things that people can go down if there's something a bit more powerful that backs it up but people are always going to want a human touch as well. And that's going to have to be there for the really complex bits and bobs. So, I mean, where I see it going is there's something very clever underneath the bonnet. There's some tax optimization that works really well. There's some really great user journeys that guide people and help people consolidate their pots and run them through different scenarios. And then maybe they'll get some, they'll kind of speak to someone for an hour over the phone and just run through everything and say, actually, this didn't capture it perfectly. This didn't capture that perfectly. And then you get to a position where you've kind of got a bit of a hybrid guidance slash robo advice type model. So, yeah, I think in its current model, it's probably not doing the job and it's not what people need. But I think give it five to 10 years and it could be there. Exciting. And then just to jump back to investment design for a sec, I'm getting everyone to talk about lifestyling versus target date funds and jump onto one side of the fence or the other, although I know it's not always that simple. Some people don't even seem to mind very much. I think I'm definitely in that latter camp. Having worked with lifestyles and having worked with target retirement funds or date funds, there's not much difference between them. They're trying to do the same same thing at the end of the day. There's just different mechanisms to implement them. There's some purported benefits from a communications perspective, which I get from target retirement funds. I think that's a little bit cleaner. So I've got a marginal preference for target. Mm -hmm. Target date funds, they do the same thing. I don't have a strong view. As long as you get the money at the end. Exactly, yeah, 100%. Pensions have been in the news lately over the summer with the the Mansion House reforms, the Mansion House Compact, trying to shine a light on private markets or, I guess, private equity in particular. What's your take on the the Mansion House Compact? We were one of the supporters, the Mansion House, we were one of the nine. And we did that because it's the direction we're moving in. We've already got some private markets and that's the next step for us. We're glad that it's non-binding. I mean, I don't think the government could ever really mandate this stuff or you'd hope they wouldn't mandate this sort of stuff, but it's non-binding. It's been useful, I think, PR and discussion points to some extent as well between ourselves and other providers and investment managers and the government. I think that's been a useful perspective of it. 
What we found really interestingly is quite a lot of member engagement on it, which is something we really weren't expecting at all. We've had a few people say, I've seen this in the press, I've seen this in you know, the Times or the FT or whatever they read. What are you doing? When's it going to happen? Some really like it. Some think it's a great idea. Some people, I think rightly so, think we shouldn't be using our pension pots to fund the UK government agenda, which I completely agree. So that's it's been a great engagement point, actually. And probably as, I don't know if this is controversial, but recently as good as kind of ESG has been for us in terms of engagement with members. So that's unexpected win to some extent. The one thing I'd say is we're never going to do anything that's to the detriment of members because that's obviously the wrong thing to do and we have that fiduciary duty. So we like the direction of travel of it. We think that's the right type of area to invest in. We think there's some really good opportunities across the UK. And where we see ourselves in three to five years is having 15 plus percent into private markets. So having that sort of allocation to, to VC in the UK it's probably not too far of a stretch of where we'd be anyway. So definitely it's a similar direction to one we'd be going in anyway. And you think that is with a UK lens then? Because it doesn't say that. It's kind of suggests that as without using the word UK. Yeah, as I say, we're having quite an interesting discussion internally about UK versus overseas, global. Yeah, because I'm, I like to think of myself as a bit of an investment purist. So I don't like constraining myself too much by being UK. But because we're again, a kind of almost a retail investor, quasi retail, we've got a million people that we need to think about. Having investments in the UK is really helpful as well, because it tends to just really drive that engagement with them. The place-based investing that we talk to Pensions for Purpose and others about is a really interesting discussion. And a lot of that's more LGPS relevant, but actually our place is the UK. So if we can invest in the UK, it's a kind of win-win. But also, I think there's interesting opportunities across Europe and the US around, particularly around renewables and green infrastructure and VC firms doing some interesting stuff. So, yeah, I think we probably have a slight overweight to UK in the grand scheme of things, still looking at the global opportunities there. Yeah, and I guess it depends how the UK market develops as well, because if all of these large schemes are suddenly putting 5% plus into UK, you need to have the opportunities or the good opportunities there for you to invest them. And do you think there are enough good opportunities in the UK? I think there are. There's a lot of opportunities emerging. I think for the scale that we're looking at, we're looking at 150, 200 million pound investment. There's probably enough opportunities for that. But once you've got really big people like Nest and others looking at 5%, that's a really significant. And I don't think there's the scale for that in the UK yet. But the life sciences, obviously, the lifts consultation is very interesting. I think there's some really interesting life sciences. I mean, we're one of the leaders in the world around life sciences. There's lots of interesting areas around tech for good that we're looking at and actually a really strong impact lens to that. The UK does quite a lot of good stuff around renewable energy in particular as well. And I know there's some mixed press around the UK government, but there's actually a fair amount of opportunity in that space as well. So at the level we're looking at right now, there is the opportunity set. Whether, as you say, once everyone looks to put 5% into it, that might be a struggle. It's not going to happen tomorrow, is it? No, it's going to be a not, gradual. Exactly. DC is quite a slow burn sometimes, so it will take a few years. Where are you at the moment on net zero? How's it all going? I think it's going pretty well. We set ourselves a net zero by 2040 target a couple of years or so back, and that felt quite punchy at the time. But actually, if you look at the latest kind of IPCC reports, 2040 is what they think you should be targeting now. So we think we're probably going to see a lot more people come down to net zero by 2040. We aim to be 50% reduced by 2025. We met that this year, start of this year. So we're two years early on that. And we're just about to set a new target of around 70, 75% reduced by 2030. So 
it only gets harder from here is the one thing I'd say because it, it's almost the low-hanging fruit is the piece that, mm. that you can do first. And our default is very tilted towards carbon transition. So everything in there has got an ESG and carbon transition lens to it. We've got things like biodiversity and their green bonds, which are very good from a climate change and net zero perspective. We need to start, well, we are looking at green infrastructure and the benefits from that. We're not a huge fan of kind of the offsetting space at the moment because of some of the governance issues and the opaqueness and the knock-on effects it has sometimes. But as we get closer to 2040, it might just be something that we need to do just to mop it up a little bit. But yeah, so far we're, we're doing well on the journey, but I think the, the hard stuff starts now. And do you get engagement from members on your net zero commitments? A bit, yeah. When we go out to members, when we lead with quite interesting facts and examples like the Make My Money Matter stuff in the 20, when we put it in real terms for them, because carbon neutrality is quite a difficult thing to explain. 2040 is quite far away for most people still, even though it's, it's not really that far away. So again, it's quite intangible as a topic. But yeah, once we start talking about we're saving this many flights or your pension scheme is seven times more impactful than your company's carbon emissions and 21 times, et cetera, et cetera. That's when we get really good engagement, actually, and people get to start to understand it. I've got friends and family and colleagues, maybe less so colleagues, but who kind of do all this really great stuff in their day, day-to-day lives, recycling and trying not to fly as much and genuinely cutting down meat just to be a bit better for the environment that they haven't got a clue where their pension is or that their pension's vested in the first place and that they could be doing so much more for the world through that. So, yeah, we do get some, but again, there's a journey. You should have a look at our Ignition House research, which came out on Friday, which we've kind of made that point since about 2018, that every that members are doing all this stuff. And you so you speak to them in consumer surveys and they're like, yes, we are trying so hard to recycle and we are trying to cut our emissions and airport and, and the amount of flying that we do. And then actually, have you thought about the way your pension's invested? No. And then the shock of where it might be invested. I mean, I'm sure it's a lot better than it was in 2018 for a lot of pension schemes, but even so, it's a big disconnect. It's really interesting. So TNFD, we did some research on TCFD this year, and it feels as though all these disclosures are sort of mounting up, aren't they? Is, is TNFD something you're looking at? We are. We're looking at it pretty heavily. Someone in my team, Fiona, is our kind of head of responsible investment, and she's very much on top of this. And we were involved in the deforestation-free guidance that came out a few months ago. So biodiversity and TNFD and, and nature-related disclosures are very much on our agenda. We've got a climate and nature policy as well that goes into it. What we're struggling with is the kind of number of metrics that are involved in TNFD. I think it was something like 1,500 when it first came out. I think they've probably streamlined it quite a lot now. But because it's such a more complex topic in some ways than TCFD, because carbon here is the same as a tonne of carbon in China or the US or wherever. But biodiversity is very different across the globe, and it's very interrelated and interlinked with lots of different other topics. So... We're trying to get to grips with it. We've got a biodiversity fund, as I mentioned, in our default, which is doing some great stuff on TNFD. As a plea to the regulator, I'm not sure that it needs to be mandated right now because I'm not sure how useful that first report's going to be for a lot of schemes. I thought TCFD came slightly too late, so there's a bit of a balance here. It needs to come early enough. It's a useful process to make people focus on it, but not too early that actually it's kind of distracting and not a useful report at all. So I think give it a couple of years, let it bed down, and then it might be something that's really useful for everyone. I'm just smiling here as we're talking because I was telling my 16-year-old son that I was coming down to do these podcasts today and he was asking all about it and I was telling him and he said, you guys have far too many acronyms <laughs> and we've just been sitting here talking about TCFD and TNFD, but anyway. We do. He's not wrong. No, he's not wrong. 
well, he's, he's usually wrong, but he was right in that occasion. It sounds like there's lots of interesting stuff going on. What does a typical day look like for you? Because there's so much going on in DC at the moment, it's almost like it's not settled down into a rhythm. So the usual stuff you'd expect working in a kind of CIO type function at Smart, lots of looking at the markets, looking at any new regulatory changes and consultations, which tends to be every day at the moment. So trying to keep on top of that with our, our policy team, working with clients quite a lot as well to understand what's going right and what's going wrong for them around their investments and engagement and all those other things. So there's some fairly standard bits there. There's a lot of project-based stuff at the moment because there's so much innovation. So TNFD you just mentioned is kind of an ongoing project for us. We've got, we're looking very closely at green infrastructure at the moment. So we're going through a process to look at that in more depth and where we want to go with that. We're talking to lots of different managers around VC, natural capital. So lots and lots of discussions with managers about the opportunity set because it's not kind of like a DB scheme 15, 20 years ago where you know exactly what you want. You know, I want a UK equity value manager, for example, and you go out and do that and then you monitor it. We're building lots of things with lots of different managers. So that's a very intensive process and we need to get it right as well because there's not much of a history of those mandates. So lots of kind of research, talking to organizations that know about these things and then working managers to build something interesting. Getting out on the ground and trying to talk to members as well from time to time. We're planning on doing lots of site visits to some interesting companies that we've got around biodiversity in particular and trying to push the engagement agenda there. And then, yeah, the industry engagements, I think, really critical as well. So lots of conferences and, and other things, talking to some interesting people and hearing interesting things from people. But yeah, very varied at the moment. What's keeping you awake at night? Yeah, as I, as I mentioned before, we started recording kids mainly, <laughs> but hopefully that settles down a bit. I think this is going to sound cliche and probably what you'll hear from a lot of people, but it's that people having enough money to retire, having, again, talked to people that are closing in on retirement and have got, I think we're about to see the first generation of people without DB pots or without substantial DB pots. And that generation might be the lost generation from a pensions perspective, because I'm hoping by the time I retire and we all retire that maybe we've thought about this a little bit more and there's some better mechanisms and better standards and things in place. But there's going to be a, a generation, I think, now that's going to be not having enough at all in retirement, not having good enough guidance or advice, or it being too expensive, returns that haven't been great in the past year or so, and some forward-looking returns that aren't looking fantastic either, if you believe all the, the kind of market negativity. So that does genuinely keep me up at night, because I think we've there's going to be a lot of pensions poverty, I think, into retirement. Climate change, to some extent, also keeps me up as a father of two young children. It feels a, a long way off still, but 2040, 2050, we're not on track at all as an industry and as a planet. And we're seeing flooding. I mean, I saw a video last night of flooding that happened this week. And it's pretty terrifying. It's quite easy to ignore it when it's not in London and it's not on your doorstep. But I think it probably will be soon or soonish. And there's wildfires in this country already. So that's keeping up a little bit as well. I don't know how any of us are sleeping well what with small children and climate change and pensions poverty. <laughs> Lots to do. Indeed. We're going to be busy. We're obviously we've got a, a very engaged group of, invest, of asset managers in the DCIF. So what would your ask be of, of asset managers? My main ask would be really get under the skin of your DC clients and your master trusts and understand how they work from a business perspective and a commercial perspective. And I think asset managers are getting much better at that. But if I think back to kind of five, 10 years ago, a lot of asset managers would have these products that have worked well in DB space or insurance space and just rebadge them in DC and just assume it's going to work. But it's a completely different setting. 
the cost pressure is is just unbelievable in DC. And I think it's going to ease slightly over the next kind of three to five years, but it's still there. So if you want to play in this space, you do have to meet that. As much as I, I try not to feel too sorry for asset managers, it's a really difficult market to play in because there's some really interesting products coming out, but the cost is just, we're not meeting in the middle at the moment with DC. So yeah, really understand the drivers, really think about your own business models and how far into the future you can kind of plan business as well, because this is sticky. I think DC Master Trust in particular are going to keep investments for a long time and they should be, particularly in certain asset classes. So kind of, yeah, be more flexible and understand DC a little bit more if you can. Try our hardest. <laughs> oh, James, thank you so much for speaking to us and for bearing with us. Just to set the scene for listeners, Lorna and I are speaking into one microphone. Like the like Supremes. The Supremes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so thanks for putting up with us. And no thanks worries. for being so interesting. And thank well, you for having chat. me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Changing Worlds New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. See you next time.